Thank you so much, Karen and Chris and musicians, and good morning, everyone. Great to be with you. Do keep your Bible open there at Exodus chapter 20, or your phone on airplane mode, of course, as we go into this uh, passage. David Foster Wallace was an award-winning American writer, and he was actually a professor of English. In 2005, he spoke at a college, uh, gave an address, and he said this. Now, bear in mind, Foster Wallace, as far as I'm aware, not a Christian at all, but he said this. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual attractiveness, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your brains, being seen as clever. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the thing about these forms of worship is they are unconscious. They are default settings. Remarkably insightful. Three years later, he hanged himself on his garden patio. According to the Bible, we need saving. We need saving from all the God substitutes that eat us alive. We need saving from ourselves. You see, we were made for God. We were made to relate to him. We were made to live in his presence and please him in a love relationship. In that relationship, we would have found fulfillment. We were made for his glory, to serve him first, to put him first. And in seeking God's glory, we would have found our highest good and our own glory. And that's how we were made in the very beginning. And it is still hardwired into every human being's DNA. Homo sapiens is also homo adorans. Humankind is the worshipping creature. By nature, we're worshippers. Uh, but we find that now our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. God alone is the source of true peace, true freedom, true fulfillment. He is what we were made for. But this is not where we find ourselves going by nature. We go anywhere else. We are spiritually bent out of shape, curved in on ourselves, even if we're physically well. Even if you are in good shape and good health and good mental health, you are spiritually deformed, according to the Bible. We have a twisted instinct to create our own gods rather than to follow the true God. Now, does that sound unlikely to you? Just think for a moment with me. What makes you really happy when you have it and really gutted when you don't? Just think about your own life. There's something that when it appears, you are so joyful, and when it's not there, you're really, really sad. What is the thing that when it is threatened or taken away, it makes you angry enough to die. So deep down, 
what is really running your life? Now, some people here will see the answers quite quickly. For others of us, it will take more reflection. But here's why those questions and our answers are so important, is because they actually reveal us, reveal to us our gods. They reveal our functional gods. Whatever runs your life and determines your priority, that is your actual God. Whatever has the power to give you joy or ruin your day and break your heart, that is your God. And in the biblical view of life, the living God is the one who should run our lives and determine our priorities, fuel our joy, yet we hate the fact that God is in charge by nature. We hate the idea of obeying God on his terms. We hate the idea that he might have the steering wheel. So our hearts constantly seek out other gods, which the Bible calls idols. Idols. Our hearts attach themselves to things created things that are not God and we insist that those created things do for us what only God can do to kind of fill his place but they can never satisfy. Now I think a lot of you probably already knew that. I want to now dig, dig down to another level with the help of a wonderful writer and Christian thinker called Dick Kies. Uh, Dick and his wife run a center in Massachusetts called Labri. It's part of an international movement. And Kais has thought very deeply about idols, and he argues that human beings cannot live without a god or gods, but we were made for the true god, and the true god, get hold of this, is two, there's two aspects. He is awesome and great, and he's also intimate and personal. See these two sides? God, is the Bible, God of the Bible is awesome and great, majestic. He's also intimate, personal, loving. So if we've kicked that God out, how do we compensate for the loss of this immense and intimate God? And Kais says we do it with pairs of idols. Pairs of idols. One idol isn't enough to do the job, so we have to have a pair of them. And he says idols usually travel in pairs. And he calls them near idols and far idols. Now, a near idol, close one, is a controlling, sorry, it's controllable. It's a comforting thing that substitutes for God's closeness to us. And a far idol compensates for the loss of God's greatness. It gives us a big explanation for life and meaning and the future and purpose. So we've got near and far compensating for the true God. You see, we're all trying to get the fullness of life and enjoy life in the world. But at the same time, we have to protect ourselves from the challenge of God. We are allergic to him. We don't want to be dependent on him and obey him. So we turn to idols. And an idol can be anything that's a substitute for God in your life. Example. An idol could be over-attachment to something that's actually good. So family, having a family is good. Uh, food and drink are good. Having kids are good. Having a career is good. all good things. But what is not good is the over-attachment to them. Modern people have millions of idols, mostly undeveloped, and anything can, can take its place as a God substitute for a while. But people are on the move and they kind of chop and change their idols. So in, in the biblical understanding, you have an overall God 
and a, a God who is also near. But in an idol substitute, you have a far God who is quite abstract and a near God who you can control. I'll give you one example of this. Alcohol. You can control alcohol. You're the one that takes a glass of wine and drinks it. According to the Bible, wine is a gift from God. It gladdens the heart. But that drink can also be something that controls you because you are using it and needing it in order to numb your pain, deal with your sense of being alone, lift you out of depression, make you less angry, just make you less bored. So we take a thing that's good and now we've become over-attached to it. Now you can't go one day without a drink. Now what used to be enough is not enough at all. You get started on that and now you, you can drink a lot more. And the next day you might feel bad about it but you can't stop, you keep going back to it. You can't contemplate giving up for a month. You see how a good thing became something you were over-attached to. That's the near idol. You can, we can all go and buy a bottle of wine, that's near. What is the far idol? Maybe it's freedom. I just want to be free from being bored, angry, lonely, and depressed. I want, to be not, I want to be free from it all. I want to be free from myself. And drink can do it for a while. You see how it works? The near idol flows out of our sense of a need for control. Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 5 says this. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried. But they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them. They can't do evil. Neither is it, is it in them to do good. An idol is like a scarecrow. You made it. Yeah, you make a scarecrow. It's totally your construction. The idol's doing a job for you. The scarecrow does a job. keeps the birds out of the cucumbers. Gives you a sense of control. It's a tame god. Some people have collections. Some people have a collection of stamps, vinyl records, model airplanes, a train set, books, single malt whiskies. I don't know why most of these examples seem to apply to men. Now, again, not necessarily bad things, but an overattachment, control of it, that might be functioning as a near idol. Gives you a sense of control. It's a pole of order in a chaotic world. Other people gain this sense of control by keeping the house clean. When the house is clean and tidy, you feel at rest. You feel you are in control. And when the house is dirty and untidy, oh my days. But for the big questions in life, that near idol is never big enough to give a sense of meaning to us. Ah, we're too big for that. We need more. So whenever there's a near idol, there's a far idol compensating. And I've got some examples that are going to come up on this slide in a moment. The near idol might be money. Money. We talked about this last week. That's near. You can control money. You can count it. You can check your bank account. It makes you feel good when it goes up. It makes you feel awful when you're overdrawn. Look at your stocks, your shares, your investments. Pension. ISAs. How much have I got in my pocket? Nothing. <gasps> that's near but what's the far idol what's explaining the world where there's fate fate governs the universe and chance so I need to have this money to protect me from that second one example sexual pleasure people get to 
Sex, blown out of all proportion. They think it will be the, the thing that gives meaning to their lives. They think it's the thing that defines them. They identify by their sexual preference. Sex has gone way too big. That's a near idol. But the far idol that sex is pointing us to is could be freedom. You feel free when you have it. Or comfort. Another near idol, expertise and skill. You're really good at something. You, you can do something. Maybe you weren't great at school, but you're really good with some skill, some talent that you have. And, and that's good for here, but what's the thing that's functioning in the distance is the explanation. It might be progress. Some people believe the world is naturally progressing to a better place. You see, there's a near and a far. Now, you see how these pairings work. But I want to point out that these false gods always backfire. They promise power to us, but they enslave us. Near idols enslave us. We can't keep total control even over the house. And fire idols evaporate when we need them. When life goes horribly wrong, believing in fate or freedom or progress isn't much of a comfort. An idol promises life and then it kills you. Nothing in this world is sufficient to bear the greatness of your soul except the one who made you, who made you for himself. O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Now I know everything I've been saying so far is, is quite out there. And by the way, this is a long introduction because it's pretty much an introduction to the whole series. Uh, my points are very brief today. But let me say, it might seem out there, but from personal experience, there's nothing more real than what we are talking about today. I have seen people's lives fall apart when their idols failed them, and it was heartbreaking to see. Over 20 years of ministry, I've seen dear people go through terrible depression and heartbreak and suicidal thoughts and despair because they had trusted their life around some of these idols, and when the idol failed, life fell apart. So this is deeply personal. And what I've noticed is this. Very often people seem to be going along fine and doing well. Their lives seem sorted. In fact, I've been tempted to wonder whether the Christian message had much to offer to them. They seem so together. They seem to have life all figured out. And part of me doubted whether the gospel would ever really connect with them. Why would they feel that they needed it? And then these dear friends whose lives seemed so together suddenly collapsed. It wasn't gradual. It was as if a whole house of cards just collapsed at once. Now look, in a room this size, there are going to be people who are in just this situation at the moment. And you're in the right place. I'm so glad you're here. And there are definitely people who will be in this situation in the future. And there are people in this room, lots of us, who know someone whose life has fallen apart because their idols failed them at the moment. So there is nothing more important for us today than to understand the Bible's teaching on this tremendous problem of worship. And the Bible's remedy is the first commandment. Back to your Bible there, Exodus chapter 20. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and here is the first commandment, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the solution to our predicament. It's to make the living God absolutely number one. 
preeminent in our lives, to serve him and build our lives around him, to trust him for everything, to love him and live for him, listen to his voice and try and please him, to surrender the fortress of your heart to him, to give him all that you are, to have no other gods before him. In other words, to get rid of idols and be ruthless about it. Now that is so, so short, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. Eight words. It's so short, you might wonder how I can find anything more to say about it. But don't worry. I've thought of some things. In fact, we've got three points, but they are very brief. And they're all questions. First one is, what does before me mean? Second one is, why is this one first in a list of ten? And the third question is, how can I be set free? Oh, there, there. What does this before me mean? Does it sound like the Bible is kind of admitting that there might really be some other gods out there and God is just making sure he stays top of the pile? Sort of prioritization exercise? Just save the last dance for me. Now, the Exodus story which we've been following earlier in the year, has made it very, very clear that there is only one God. In fact, God has taken his time to rescue the children of Israel. He didn't just sweep them out of Egypt on day one. He engaged in an epic conflict with Pharaoh, the king. God's man, Moses, went to Pharaoh and asked him to let the people go. Let my people go. Remember that? But Pharaoh refused, and this initiated a standoff in which Pharaoh kept refusing and God threatened and then delivered 10 signs, sometimes called 10, 10 plagues. At any point, Pharaoh could have taken the fork in the road and let the people go, but he refused. Now, the interesting thing about these plagues is not sort of how they happened, which is what modern people tend to think about, but actually what they were really doing, which is that they were showing up the gods of Egypt, the false idols, the Egyptians worshipped the river Nile. The Nile was a god, so God changed the Nile to blood. The Egyptians had a frog god, so God sent a plague of frogs, enough to make you wish you never saw a frog again. The Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a god. It was said to be the incarnation of God. And so the final plague is a judgment on his firstborn. What is going on here? The whole story is a massive lesson to those who will hear, that there is only one true God and you can trust him fully. The gods of the Egyptians can't be trusted. They're exposed as a fake and they're humiliated. Before God, here's the thing, before God can get the Israelites out of Egypt, he has to get Egypt out of the Israelites. I'll say it again. I know it sounds a bit funny. Before God can get the Israelites out of Egypt, he has to get Egypt out of the Israelites because they've been living there 400 years in this world of gods, drinking it in, breathing the air. He has to show them that the idols they've been following are absolutely bankrupt and don't even exist, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. He has to make them fall out of love with their idols before they can fall in love with him. And that has to happen to you and me too. Has it ever happened? Have you seen through something and turned and loved God more? Because, by the way, this isn't something that just happens on the day you became a Christian. This is the whole of life. The whole of the Christian life is exposing our hearts' idols and clinging ever more truly and fully to the living God. There's only one God, 
That's been clear. So then why does it say, you shall have no other gods before me? Now this uh, phrase translated before me is quite an interesting one. It can be taken a couple of different ways. And I think both of these ways are instructive. Firstly, one way of reading it is literally before me, in front of me, in my presence can be taken like this, and that means it's a reminder that we are always in God's presence. He is before us, in front of us. We're always with him. You might be here on Sunday morning singing and joining in public worship, but which God are you following on Monday morning? Is your life, whole life one of true worship to the true God all week long? Because if you're following another God on Monday morning, he sees it. It's in his presence, and he is rightly offended. Now, the other possible meaning is actually in the footnote of our Bible. It can mean besides. You shall know other gods beside me. So that means no other gods except me. No other gods. It's a demand for total loyalty, fidelity, devotion. The living God will not tolerate any rivals for your love. Why should he? He's given you everything you have. He's pursued you with mercy and loving kindness. He sent his son, Jesus, to seek and to save you when you were lost. Jesus gave his life on the cross to buy your freedom and forgiveness. Jesus rose from the dead to conquer death and guarantee your future. Jesus ascended to heaven so that he can stand before God the Father on your behalf. Pray for you. The Father and the Son sent the Spirit into the world, into your heart, Christian, to live in you, to dwell in you, to lead you and guide you and convict you and comfort you and keep you and protect you. Now, in the light of all that the triune God has done for you, can you see how awful it is to not give him your full devotion? Can you see how disgraceful it is to cheat on him with idols? Can you see how any rival for for your affections, even your child, even your spouse, even your family, is a deeply unworthy thing? He has shown ultimate loyalty to you. The only appropriate response is absolute loyalty to him. Anything else is spiritual adultery. That's why it says, before me. Second question, why does this commandment come first? Why is it the first one? Ten Commandments, why this is number one? Answer is, it's the first commandment because it's the foundation for all the others. It's the rock on which to build a life. And here's the interesting thing. You never break any of the other commandments without breaking this one first. You never break any of the other nine without breaking this one first. give you an example. The tenth commandment is, you shall not covet And as Karen read, it plays this out in different ways. You shan't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife or servants. You shan't covet your neighbor's ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And by the way, when the Bible talks of neighbors, it doesn't just mean the people who live next door. It's everybody in your sphere of influence. Now, I think we all know what coveting feels like. Somebody moves into a, a, a new house which is better than your house. 
and you go around to see them and you are pleased for them, but secretly you're dying. You'll covet that house. Ah, you're walking around saying, this is great, but part of you is dying. Covetousness affects us all in different ways. Maybe you don't give a, a monkeys about houses. For some people, it might be coveting another person's mode of transport, their bike, their car. For some, it is their partner. Wow, he did well for himself. And you know that's going on if you start thinking about someone else's partner in inappropriate ways. You're coveting them. It might be someone else's talents or success. The American writer Gore Vidal once said, every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies a little. Coveting. You see, it's one thing to admire something. Coveting takes it a step further. Covetousness takes us to a dark place where we despise what we have and we long for what someone else has. It's a deep yearning. But you know what? The essence of covetousness is this. It is never satisfied. You never have enough. It always wants what it does not have. It can't be satisfied. Now, we're going to think more about this when we get to the 10th commandment, God willing. But for now, here's the point. You never break the 10th commandment without breaking the first one. How so? Because a heart of covetousness is to say, I am lacking. I don't have enough. I don't have sufficient. I'm not being looked after. I need more. I define what I need, and I haven't got it. I need to be more fully satisfied. I need more and more and more. But if we really believe the first commandment, we would know that we have God himself. You already have God. What else do you need? You have God, the living God, who owns the universe. He loves you. He's 100% committed to you. He's told them, I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's bound himself to you in a relationship of deathless love. God has given himself, himself to you. And you're yearning for someone else's house? God is God. Isn't he, isn't he good enough? Can't he provide? So the first commandment is the foundation for all the others. Whenever we find ourselves stealing or lying or cheating or dishonoring our parents, it's because we've broken the first commandment. Now I hope by now you've seen how these commandments are showing up our hearts, how sinful they are. We have sold out to idols, every one of us. So that leads us to our final question, which is this. How can I be set free? How can I be set free? If you've been listening today and it has dawned on you that you have not been living life for God, that is actually a good realization. You are in the right place. God has been working in your life to bring you here today. It's not an accident. You've been chasing these false gods and you've found that in reality they gave you no freedom at all. And God loves you too much to carry on like that. He's tapping on your window very gently at first. So gently you could almost miss it if you don't pay attention. Let me encourage you to listen. Don't continue in that way. If you've woken up today to the reality of what breaking this commandment means, then I hope you now want to know how to be set free. And there is only one way, and it is by following Jesus Christ.
You see, Jesus Christ is the only human being who ever kept these commandments perfectly, with complete integrity. He never wavered. He never put any other things before the true God, even when he was in the furnace of the most severe temptation. Jesus was tempted by the devil himself. Jesus was weak and famished from fasting. And the devil showed him a dazzling vision of all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And there's Jesus, weak and famished. And he answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Even though it meant choosing the hard path of suffering, he kept the commandment. It meant that Jesus was pushed to the limit for our sake. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew that he would soon be captured and face the cross. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And yet he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, but not my will but yours be done. This is a man keeping the first commandment even when it hurts. Jesus put God's will first. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He hung on that shameful Roman torture instrument and he prayed for those who cursed him. He made provision for his mother. He forgave the dying thief and he finished his work. He cried out, it is finished. He'd made full payment for all our sins. And then he breathed his last and died. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus kept the first commandment, no other gods before God. Now, what does that, how does that relate to you and me? It means that we can be set free from following worthless idols too by following Jesus. Firstly, because of his example, by his perfect life, Jesus showed us how to live. Secondly, by his death, he paid for our sins and set us free from idols. Whatever you've done in the past or whatever you've followed, Jesus can forgive it all and give you a new heart. And thirdly, we are changed when we look at him. So if you spend a lot of your time focusing on, let me give a, a silly example, right move. Right move. Which a friend of mine once described as porn for married women. Not looking on right move isn't a sin, is it? But if you're always on it looking at, oh, that house is nice, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, what's happening is that your heart is being bent towards property just by virtue of the amount of time you're spending gazing on it. And that will drift you towards idolatry. Some of you young guys, you spend a lot of time seeking out images of gorgeous women. What you're doing is bending your heart in a direction of saying, that's where life really is. And if you spend little or no time looking at Jesus Christ, guess what? You're being formed by an idol. This is so practical. We are going to be changed when we look at Jesus. And that's why this morning is so important in the life of our church that every month we come together and we look we, together we look at and consider his sacrifice for us. We remember it again. And we don't just 
I only have one time a month when we can do that. Every single day we can look at Jesus because we have something even greater than the Israelites at the foot of the mountain. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the new object of our affections and he's worthy of it. So by adoring him, beholding him, loving him, believing him, listening to him, we will be changed. And you are being changed. Moment by moment, day by day. Hebrews 12 says this. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking that those who heard it begged no further word be spoken to them because they couldn't bear what was commanded. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, Jesus, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So see to it that you do not refuse the voice of him who speaks. We're going to have a moment of quiet. Musicians are going to come back up. I will pray and then we'll come to the table. Let's reflect. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. Lord, we thank you that in your word you speak to us the truth, you tell us the truth about ourselves. And when we look in that mirror, we can be appalled by what we see but you don't do it to cast us down, but to lift us up and to give us yourself. Burn away our idols, we pray. Put Jesus in our heart and mind so firmly that we will never let him go. And use this table now to strengthen and fortify our faith. Amen.